John Tracy has 100 meters to go. In the past, Ireland have won bronze medals. John Caldwell, Freddie Gilroy, Socks Byrne, Jim McCourt, Hugh Russell. They've won gold, Pat O'Callaghan twice, Bob Tisdall, Rob Delaney. They've won silvers with John McNally, Fred Teat, Wilkins and Wilkinson. And for the 13th time, an Irish medal goes to Remember That Guy, the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players, past and present, top of the morning to you here at the top of the show. I am your little host with the great heart, James. Diaz back with you once again. And uh, as it was foreshadowed by that lovely tribute to Ireland, we have an incredibly special guest with us this week. One of the greatest competitors in the history of the land of the potatoes. Please introduce yourself. Yeah, it's uh, me, Robbie Keane. Just kidding. <laughs> it is still Irish, but not as Irish as Robbie Keane. Very special guest, Xavier. The oh, lengths yeah. that Xavier has gone exclusively just to make this show international is really impressive. Like, to have taken this vacation just to expand that footprint, Xavier, I, I really admire the commitment. I'm putting stickers up all over Dublin. Just remember, guys, pod, all, all the Twitter handles, you know, everything. Just trying to expand our uh, footprint a bit. Man, now I'm mad that I haven't made stickers yet. That's on the list now. But instead of stickering things, let's go ahead and stick to our structure, which means right now we're going to go ahead and pick up with Making Memories. I'll lead off because uh, it, this is more of a, a recent discovery that I guess I've had, uh, but it's somebody that we as Temple alumnus, Xavier in particular as a fellow Temple football mega fan like myself, we all remember the ballad of Manny Diaz. And for the uninitiated, Manny Diaz was hired to be Temple's head football coach following the departure of Jeff Collins. Temple has somewhat created itself as a stepping stone program in the college football ranks. It's where a coach goes before they make the next big step, which is fine. I'm 100% fine with that. If you have broader career aspirations than Temple, I fully respect that. But what I don't respect is what a man named Manny Diaz did. So Manny Diaz signed the contract to come to Temple. He convinced high school seniors who had already committed to Temple to honor that commitment and to remain at Temple. And then what Manny did 18 days after signing this contract with the Owls is he did not honor his own commitment because he was the defensive coordinator for Miami. And then about three weeks later, their head coaching position opened up. So Manny leaves. Manny spent three seasons in Miami as the head coach. They were top 15 preseason last year. But they opened 2-4, and four, only finished 7-5, and, and sure enough, Manny was fired. Now, I thought Manny was just out of football, which I was like, good riddance, this man needs to take a break and he needs to focus on himself. Instead, what he actually did, he, he's now a defensive coordinator for, for a major college football program. Do either of you know which college football program that is? Trying to think of what, what do I consider the most morally reprehensible right now? And I think the Ohio State still has enough of the Urban Meyer stink around it that I'm going to guess the Ohio State. James, you're on the right track. I want you to think a little closer to home, both figuratively and literally, for a Temple football fan. Penn State. He is the defensive coordinator for the Penn State Nittany Lions, like a piece of shit that he is. So as if abandoning Temple wasn't enough, he now goes to... Honestly, like, it's a one-sided rivalry, but I struggle to think of a team that Temple football hates more than Penn State. So he goes to our biggest rival. We're not even in their top ten of rivals. I'm not going to act like that. But 
to rub it in our faces and then to go to Penn State and now he's their defensive coordinator. So Manny Diaz choosing to follow in the footsteps of Jerry Sandusky to be the defensive coordinator of the Penn State Nittany Lions, a reprehensible and immoral person going to a reprehensible and immoral program. It is a match made in heaven, but I just wanted to say fuck off Manny Diaz for all the the non-memories that were made. If he would have stayed for two, three years at Temple, won a bowl game, maybe get a conference title, that's all we needed. I'm not asking him to stay and be the next long-term. I'm not asking him to be the John Chaney of Temple football. But I am asking him to stay more than 18 days. He didn't. He's a piece of shit, and he's where he belongs. So fuck off Manny Diaz, one of the biggest assholes in college football history. I do like how you've presented temple football in this the way you've so often presented fighters in your stories about fighting as like this was the mini boss that you need to clear before getting to the big time because apparently that's just what temple is in terms of football head coaching jobs right and and he put in the cheat code and listen in video games i'm all for cheat codes whatever gives you the maximum enjoyment because a video game comes down to your individual experience unless you're playing online single player games cheat codes i'm all for it these are real people that had options to go elsewhere that Manny Diaz then said, oh, nah, stay at Temple. We're building something here. And then two weeks later, dips out. I just can't even fathom how a person can make that decision and can like live with themselves and sleep at night. So it's, it's, it's disgusting. He skipped over the mini boss and that is not allowed. Speaking of video games, let's go ahead and turn to our guest Xavier. How you doing this week, buddy? Who's making memories for you? <laughs> Well, if you're talking about video games, I did beat Spyro on the plane to Dublin. The Spyro but, uh, Retro Collection? Yeah, I, I, I 100% did the first one, uh, Reignited. I went back and bought that too, and it still has just such crisp platforming. Like, it feels just fun. so it, good it's just to play. Fun. They really knocked out of the park with that one, man. I miss good old platformers. Anyway, in the sports realm, who's making memories for you? <laughs> so... I haven't been able to stay super up to date with things across the pond over here, although I am hoping to go to a match tomorrow between St. Patrick's Athletic a team over here in Dublin versus uh, Dundalk. So if I do get to see that, it'll be my first European football match experience, which I'm excited for. But two real quick things that I have seen. One, Zach Wilson confirmed has that dog in him. Everyone who knows what I'm talking about doesn't need me to explain it further. Everyone else can just look it up on Twitter. And the other real quick thing is happy birthday. You know, Chad Ochocinco said it best. Happy birthday to the only person to ever stop me, the GOAT, Darrell Revis. Future Hall of Famer, seven-time Pro Bowler, four-time All-Pro, 2010's All-Decade team. Completely shut out Andre Johnson, Randy Moss, Marcus Colston, Terrell Owens, Torrey Holt, Steve Smith, Reggie Wayne, and Chad Ochocinco in one year. And just no one could do anything about it. So happy birthday to, to Revis. I remember with Darrell Revis, I was only like really starting to be able to understand what was going on in football other than when people score. And I remember looking at the stats and I wasn't really understanding like what the big deal was with Darrell Revis because it wasn't like he had that many tackles or interceptions necessarily. And then I finally saw a Ravens-Jets game live. I was like, oh, that's why he doesn't have it. Because no one puts the ball within 20 of feet of him. Yeah. Now, Revis is a legend and... Just because you brought him up, like, Chad, I was just thinking, do you guys know he's training for boxing in Philadelphia, like, with Philadelphia fighters right now? Are you trying to take him on? 
uh, it depends on the payday. If uh, if we can get one of those Jake Paul paydays set up where you know I get I get paid like a half million to get my ass kicked by Chad Johnson, I'll take it. Do you think you could last um, the full fight with Chad Johnson? I don't think so. I okay. I I don't think I would get knocked out cold, but I would be knocked down, and the ref would eventually take. But how many how many rounds do you think you're making? If I made it to the first bell, like if I had the opportunity to go sit back in my corner and my <laughs> trainer got to look me in the eyes and say, dude, you're getting fucked up out there. What are we going to do about this? If I made it to that point, that's a victory. Also, I had his entire NFL career on a McDonald's diet, which is just really, they made a whole documentary about how horrible this food is for you. And he was a top five receiver in the league throughout his career. He's a good soccer player, too. Like, he's a renaissance man. Just a very good athlete overall. He's a fun, like, he's a fun like individual. I think he's cool now. You know who else I think is cool right now? I'm a big fan right now of the Nationals. Uh, everyone's thinking about the Nationals right now. Uh, I'm not talking about the Washington Nationals, by the way. I should clarify that in case anyone was confused. Uh, I'm talking about the Haudenosaunee Nationals. Are you guys familiar with this at all? No. So the Haudenosaunee Confederacy is better known to us uh, because of their initial French name as the Iroquois Confederacy. It oh, is okay. Yes. Yeah. So the Iroquois Confederacy, the Haudenosaunee Nationals, are their lacrosse team, and they're a very good lacrosse team. Unsurprising because the Haudenosaunee Confederacy gave us lacrosse. Yeah, it was a very. Have you ever read about what lacrosse was originally? Because it used to be played on open fields with hundreds of people on both sides, <laughs> and it was also like a very well because it was a very kind of it was ceremonial. It was ritualistic. People would spend a long time painting and adorning themselves ahead of time. Your your stick was very bespoke. Essentially, what I'm getting at is that it was initially more than a sport, but it has become a sport. They are the progenitors of that sport. And on an international level, they are able to compete in a lot of the world championships. Uh, in fact, the women's team actually just recently in Towson, Maryland, just a little bit north of Baltimore, finished eighth in a tournament where they were seeded 12th. So, you know, performing above expectations. But the problem with the recent World Games held in Birmingham, Alabama, is that they use IOC international eligibility restrictions, and the IOC does not consider the Haudenosaunee people to be independent of the United States and Canada. Understandably, barring the inventors of the sport from an international competition, didn't go over super well. So a couple things started happening, online petitions, as there often are, and big domino to fall was the United States and Canada both signing letters essentially affirming we as sovereign nation states are not going to be offended by this happening if they are allowed to participate. But the problem was the field had already been set. So they needed someone to open up and in comes, once again, Ireland. Ireland has a very long history actually of solidarity with indigenous Americans back in the 1800s when there was the Irish potato famine that DS alluded to earlier. During that time, there was a large collection put on by the New York Friends Society, New York Quakers. They sent 100000 or so dollars over to Ireland, and they earmarked where everything came from. $170 of it came from the Choctaw people, which is 5400 today. And this is almost immediately after the Choctaw people just got forcibly moved from their original lands to Oklahoma following the 1830 Indian Exclusion Act. So, really, very generous and has never been forgotten by the Irish people. Uh, they also brought lacrosse over there in 1876. They brought an indigenous, like, barnstorming team. And so, that relationship has continued. One way that that actually happened before this was, during COVID, Ireland raised millions of dollars in famine relief for the Choctaw and other indigenous nations. Uh, and now, they have this opportunity to open up 
their spot. They gave up their spot willingly in the tournament so that the Haudenosaunee Nationals could participate. They won the Stan Musial Sportsmanship Award for this, and uh, really just a, an awesome story. The Nationals finished 2-2 two and two in the World Games, came in fifth place overall, but huge monumental moment for their participation. And don't you worry, this is not the end of the story, because the Under-20 tournament next year is going to be held in Limerick, Ireland. And you better believe that the Irish government is currently making sure that the Haudenosaunee people will have visas for their Nationals compete in that tournament. So, mega memories for me, the Haudenosaunee Nationals and the Irish National Lacrosse team. Just love it. Ireland sure loves supporting those fellow persecuted people. They, they, they are a big believer in solidarity. I, I have a note here, like, if there's time, mention Irish solidarity with Palestine as well. So I'll just throw that out there real quick. <laughs> no, they're great. We love to see that. We love to see a lot of things in sports. And we're, we're coming up on having done this for, goodness gracious, nearly a year. Before we return next week to our regular programming... We wanted to take a moment to all just kind of collectively look back on what it is that has infected us with the deep disease of fandom that we all consistently suffer from that brings us almost nothing but pain. As painful though as it all is, it all starts with, with a, a seed of love. We want to discuss those seeds today. Diaz, I know you've got some seed building up inside of you. Why don't you go ahead and, and share that with us? I've got so much seed inside of me. It is overflowing. It's up to my ears. I need a furious release of all of this seed before it just backs up and kills me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm gonna start in current day. And I'm going to work my way back a little bit to, to get to the team that cursed me with uh, this horrific cause of loving this team. The Sixers in their modern iteration. I think they are probably a borderline top five title favorite for next year. I think the offseason additions have been very good. We've had a lot of heartbreak over the years. Number 25, deciding to pass out of a wide open dunk over Trey Young. You know, we had the, uh, we had the Kawhi quadruple, uh, which led to their championship. That was a particularly tough one. Going back further, we have Sixers had a game seven against the, the big three Celtics. And Paul Pierce fouled out within a four-point game with five minutes left. And I thought the Sixers have this. Rajon Rondo hit three threes in a row. Rajon Rondo is a sub-30% three-point shooter for his career. So that one really hurt because that was, that was kind of what put the nail in the coffin for that team. And that could have gotten us back to the Eastern Conference Finals for the first time since 2001, which is the team that I want to talk about today. The 2000-2001 Eastern Conference champions, the only team to beat the Lakers in the playoffs that year, the Philadelphia 76ers of 2000-2001, are the team that really gave me no choice. It was, I, I don't remember deciding that I loved them. I remember it just becoming a fact of life. So that Sixers team... First of all, the, the team that went to the finals was not the team that started the season. Uh, there was a pretty significant trade that was made about halfway through. We had Theo Ratliff. Theo Ratliff is a quintessential guy in basketball history. Late 90s, early 2000s. I think he made it almost to the end of the decade because he did go back to the Sixers around like 2008. But Theo Ratliff was our starting center. Great rim protector. I think he might have actually been second in the league in blocks that year. But the person that he finished behind was Dikembe Mutombo. And uh, Ratliff 
got injured going into the All-Star break that year, right around the trade deadline. The Sixers, their team identity this year, and I wish they would have stuck with this. Because so what they what they ended up doing in later years, right, is they tried to find the co-star for Allen Iverson. Matt Harpering was a failed co-star. Tony Kukoc was a failed co-star. Glenn Robinson, the original, the original big dog, was a failed co-star. Chris Webber, all kinds of guys came and went and just weren't able to be the second star. But what they did with this Sixers team is they said, let's let Allen Iverson take every single shot, basically be the offense. Let's surround him with four guys that are going to play good defense and let's win ugly, basically, was kind of their, their, their outlook on it. And Theo Ratliff was a key part of that. But once he got injured, it was like, okay, any defense, even in the modern NBA, the one thing that the NBA has always come down to is the most important defensive position is the center. Because the center is going to protect the rim. So with no Ratliff, we were left with uh, Matt Geiger and Todd McCullough. Matt Geiger looks like an incredibly tough man, bald-headed with a goatee. But was actually just much more of a finesse offensive player. Wasn't very physical. Fun fact. Two years prior to this Sixers team making the finals, Sixers had an agreed-upon trade to send out Allen Iverson to Charlotte. However, Matt Geiger was included in that trade, and while Allen Iverson did not have a no-trade clause, Matt Geiger had a no-trade clause. <laughs> Matt Geiger kept Allen Iverson in Philadelphia. What was the return going to be on that? What could possibly be like a, a, a reasonable return on Allen Iverson? So I want to say it was Baron Davis was going to be the main guy coming back. Are you fucking kidding me? Baron fucking Davis for Allen Iverson? Pre-knee injury, Baron Davis is a very different Baron Davis. I want to say that. The start of his career, here is the, the idea. Baron Davis was a more traditional point guard, may distribute the ball better, might be a quote-unquote better team player. So that was kind of the rationale, uh, if it was Baron Davis. Okay. It may not have okay. been. I don't know. This is all, this is all purely conjecture right now. But what isn't conjecture is that if Matt Geiger did not activate his no-trade clause, Iverson would have been off of that team. Incredible. And we had Todd McCullough, who is another just great basketball guy history. Todd McCullough was actually a really good center, had really good footwork, was really gifted in that perspective. What sucked for him is that he ended up having some kind of neurological disease where essentially he was losing feeling in his, uh, his feet. Obviously, if you're not able to run up and down and jump, you're not going to be that much of a, a basketball player. So he had to retire early. What Todd McCullough did in his post-NBA career, though, is he became one of the greatest pinball players in the world. He was ranked top 100 in pinball not long after his NBA career. I don't know if he's still doing that, but between Matt Geiger, whose most valuable contribution to the Sixers was activating his no-trade clause, and Todd McCullough, who would sooner be in a pinball league before he would uh, contribute on an NBA court in a significant way again, the Sixers had to make a move, right? So they end up trading Ratliff for Dikembe Mutombo. Mutombo, who, he's one of my favorite basketball players of all time. One of my favorite Mutombo stories. He was a very funny guy. He was also a guy that was told to be in locker rooms, very well endowed. And we'll just leave it at that. What he would often do is uh, he would be the first one to go to the showers after a game. And then he would come out of the shower without a towel on just in his full glory, and he would say to the locker room, who wants to sex Mutombo? Okay, yes, I do love that. He's the Lyndon Baines Johnson of NBA locker rooms. And, I mean, just in that, in that classic, just, like, deep African voice of his as well, it always makes me laugh whenever I think of him actually doing that. 
But anyway, we're not here to talk about Kenobi Mutombo's penis. We're here to talk about the 2000-2001 Philadelphia 76ers. I mean, hey, that can be what we're here for. It's our show. Maybe maybe on uh, Guys After Dark, which is also hosted by our good friend Chris Hardwick. Except in that one, they put a hyphen between the hard and the wick just to emphasize it. We really just want to send home, this is not the show for children. But anyway, there's 2000-2001 Sixers. They make the trade for Mutombo. They go into the playoffs as the one seed, and they're positioned well to, to hopefully make some noise. But they're a longtime nemesis uh, throughout these late 90s, early 2000s. It always felt like when they got knocked out, when they should have won, it was by the Indiana Pacers. And they faced the Pacers in the first round. They actually dropped game one at home. High score for the game was Aaron McKee with 18 points. So... A, when your high scorer only gets 18, and B, when your high scorer isn't Allen Iverson and you're the Philadelphia 76ers, you're probably not going to win that game. So they end up losing that game. But they take the next three, and then this set up an Eastern Conference semifinal series with the Toronto Raptors. So I alluded to earlier the infamous Kawhi quadruple doink. Now, I very quickly rationalized after that quadruple doink that it was the universe making things equal. Because the seven-game series that they had with the Raptors was an incredible series. So first of all, some of the guys that were on that Raptors team, you had Vince Carter was the main star. You also had uh, Antonio McDice, real good center. You had Del Curry was their three-point specialist for the Raptors that year. Oh, is that the Curry jersey that Drake then wore during the finals, that specific Del Curry jersey? Yeah, okay. that, that's, that's the Del Curry jersey. So like, that, was, that was a pretty good Raptors team. But Vince Carter was far and away their biggest star. And it's a back-and-forth series throughout. Game 7, the Sixers are up 4 with about a minute left. Del Curry hits a huge 3 to cut the lead to 1. Sixers come down. They don't get a bucket. And then the shot clock's unplugged. Raptors call timeout. They set up a final play. Vince Carter had been fucking killing us this whole series. And as you're going left to right on the television screen, the Raptors are shooting on the right basket. They're inbounding on the far side of the court. And they inbound with the Carter. He gets it in the corner with about 2.1 left. He pulls a pump fake. And I think it was Jermaine Jones that goes flying by. And all of a sudden, Vince Carter has a wide open look from 20 feet away. It goes in. The Raptors win the series. It would have been the first buzzer beater in Game 7 history if he had made it. And the whole way from the second it leaves his hand, you're like, well, that's in. There's no way he misses that. Uh, he misses it. He hits it off back rim. It was on perfect line. It just hits back rim. And the Sixers end up winning that. And there's like an iconic scene right after. Like the fans somewhat pour onto the court. Not as much as they used to back in like the 70s when like the Celtics would win their titles and they'd storm yeah. the court. But like, you know, Allen Iverson is like with the crowd, putting his hand up to his ear like he always does. An iconic moment. So that what that set up is the Sixers then go to the Eastern Conference Finals where they face off against the Milwaukee Bucks. Milwaukee Bucks also had an, an amazingly gifted wing player on their team that year. Uh, what do you like to guess who the star was for those Milwaukee Bucks teams? Is this Ray Allen? In fact, it is Ray Allen. I just, I just want to take a brief second here because I feel like a lot of people only remember Ray Allen at the end of his career, especially with the Heat, but even with the Celtics, he was kind of just typecast as a three-point specialist. But Ray Allen... In the Sonics era and in the Bucks era, was a three-level scorer who could do everything. He could attack the rim. He was a ferocious dunker. 
Um, he had a mid-range game too, which is especially rare for a three-point shooter to, to also have a mid-range game in their bag. But Ray Allen was amazing. They also had Glenn Robinson. They also had Irvin Johnson, not Magic, but they had Irvin, the greatest basketball player in University of New Orleans history. This series also goes seven, but the Sixers actually would end up blowing out that Bucks team in game seven. It was like a no doubt about it. There was never any question. So they go to the finals and the Lakers team that they faced that year. I think if you talk to most people, that was the best Lakers team of their dynastic run. This was the team that got the repeat. So this was coming off of their 2000 championship. They come back the next year and they're even better than ever. Keep in mind, the first series was best of five at this point. They sweep in the first round. They sweep in the second round. They sweep in the Western Conference Finals. They're going into the NBA Finals at 11-0. and They have a chance to become the first team in NBA history to go through an entire playoff run undefeated. Famously, the team that came closest to that before that was the 82-83 Sixers. When Mo Malone famously decreed, foe, foe, foe. Ended up being faux five faux, but they only lost the one game the whole way. So it's it's almost poetic now that the team that came closest to doing it is now going to get the chance to go against the Lakers, who are trying to do it themselves. By all accounts, it is it is expected that the Lakers are going to sweep the Sixers team because the Sixers team isn't even the best team necessarily that they face in their playoff run. The pre-finals montage, so you know, like right before the game starts, they do the intro. It was David versus Goliath was literally the Marv Albert narration. It was, and I mean, especially in a literal sense, Goliath being Shaquille O'Neal, David being Allen Iverson. Pretty, I, it's pretty fair. And I mean, especially in a literal sense, Goliath being Shaquille O'Neal, David being Allen Iverson. How many feet does Shaquille O'Neal have on Allen Iverson? It's a, it's one full foot. Allen Iverson is, is allegedly six foot. That's an, I, I could go on about that forever as well because that is one <laughs> of the greatest sources of debate in like niche NBA, nobody really thinks Allen Iverson was six foot. Six foot just sounds a lot better than five, ten and a half. Who lies more about their height, Allen Iverson or Kevin Durant? I think Kevin Durant, because Kevin Durant's a legit seven foot, and he says he's like six ten, and that's like bullshit. They go into the finals, and just as it is now, like I, I hate how late the NBA finals games start, especially now that I'm older. When I was in college, I loved it. It didn't really make a difference to me. But now that like, you know, we have jobs, you know, we're older. A game that doesn't start till nine is probably not getting done till like eleven thirty. I'm not gonna be calmed down from watching it until midnight. It sucks. Like it, it frankly sucks. I never had a problem staying up late when I was a kid though. So it was the same kind of thing then where the games would still start very late. And me being eight years old at the time. You know, obviously bedtime is still a thing uh, when you're eight years old. But my neighbor was having a, a big watch party for game one. And I remember the deal that I was able to negotiate with my dad. And I still think this is a great deal on my part. Is I get to stay up. I get to watch the whole game. And I get to have as many sodas as I want. And I get to have as many snacks as I want. As long as I am the official beer runner for everybody in that room. So that they never need to get up and miss a second of action. Incredible deal. You got paid exquisitely for your services. I commend you for an excellent negotiation on that salary. Thank you. Thank you. I, it's, you know, I didn't have the, the help of an agent or anything like that. I was only eight. I think we had just maybe started multiplication tables shortly before that. So you know, my math knowledge was not yet fully formed, but I, I was still able to, to cut a pretty good deal there. And I, I mean, that game was 
first of all, the Sixers come storming out of the gates. Everybody remembers the ending, and I'll get to the ending. But the Sixers came storming out of the gates in that game. They were up, I think, like double digits at halftime. And really just behind a virtuoso performance by Iverson. Iverson had close to 30 at half. And, like, they had, they had Kobe Bryant on him. And, like, Kobe, every angle you can look at it. He was younger than Iverson. He was longer than Iverson. He was a better athlete than Iverson. Iverson shouldn't be able to do anything with Kobe guarding him. And he was lighting Kobe the fuck up. Derek Fisher got a few tries on him. Derek Fisher couldn't do anything with him. Good. So, yeah, I know. Just, yeah. I mean, yeah, fuck Derek Fisher. Uh, when it came back for the second half, they had to make an adjustment. Because, I mean, they can't just let Iverson go off all over you, right? So, what, what they switched to is they put in Tyron Lue. This, this young, also has the cornrows like Iverson. But just this young, not really in the rotation, but you know what? We got to try something. Guard. What I think helped Tyron Liu is the fact that he's actually even smaller than Iverson. It's kind of a thing that's understood in basketball. I don't necessarily agree with it, but like when there's a little guy guarding a bigger guy, the little guy is allowed to get away with some stuff. You know, some yeah. hand checking, some pushing, some shoving, some holding. And Ty Liu's doing this to Iverson like the entire second half. He's like completely locking him the fuck up. Probably illegally. The Lakers end up storming back in the fourth quarter. They're able to force it to overtime. And everybody's thinking, all right, well, fuck. You know, the Sixers had the lead. This is probably our best chance to steal one in L.A. Now it went to overtime. They have all the momentum. We're probably in trouble here. Sure enough, the Lakers do end up taking a lead. And they're up four with a little under two minutes left. Iverson manages to get a somewhat of a step on Lou. He gets a little hip check as he puts up a shot. It's a foul call, almost banks it in. So this would have been a huge play to quickly cut it to a two-point lead, potentially one. But he gets the foul call, drains both, makes it a two-point game. For some reason, and this will always fascinate me, and every time that I watch this game back, I never understand what the fuck Ty Lue is thinking. But with Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, Rick Fox, and Horace Grant all on the floor. Up two, with under a minute 30 now left in game one of the NBA Finals, Ty Lue said, it's Ty Lue time. And he tries to take Iverson one-on-one. What's <laughs> up? Like, a shot that had no chance. And, like, he's, like, falling out of bounds as he shoots it. So, it's, it's an easy rebound. Sixers are now breaking the other way five-on-four. Since Ty Lue is the guy that now took himself out of the play on a five-on-four... Lakers don't scramble correctly. So, of course, what happens? Allen Iverson gets it kicked out on the wing for a wide-open three. He drains it, gives the Sixers the lead, and now they're up two. Sixers go back down. They get another stop. And then this sets up the iconic moment that everybody knows. Iverson gets the ball in the far left corner, gives a jab step, gives a jab step, gives two dribbles down the baseline, pulls the crossover back between his legs, Aids back. Ty Lue falls as the ball's in the air. Iverson drains it. And then Iverson looks down at Ty Lue with the most contempt I have ever seen one man have for another on the basketball court. And just steps over him. I feel like he kind of turned his hips in a little bit so that like Ty Lue could actually look at his dick in his face. It's so funny because like right after he does it, somebody on the Lakers bench like tries to pick up Ty Lue. What are you doing? Go back. Get down there. Like, what are you doing? They came back down. And so, like, this, it's it's funny, like, the moments that stand out as iconic in NBA history. 
So like that Iverson moment is iconic, right? The same way that uh, LeBron's block on Iguodala is iconic. The block on Iguodala isn't what won the game. The same way that this Iverson crossover isn't what won the game. Because the Lakers came back down and Kobe Bryant was guarded by Rajah Bell. Rajah Bell was a 10-day signing for the Sixers during this season, ended up sticking around, and ended up being like probably our best wing defender, in, in all honesty, either him or Aaron McKay. Rajah Bell, another just great guy in NBA history. God, if he didn't get in that fight, those Suns would have won a championship. I'll say that too. But anyway, Kobe is guarded incredibly well by Rajah Bell, but Kobe hits like a spinning 18-foot fadeaway, and uh, now the lead was cut back down to two. So now it's like, all right, pressure's on. Sixers need to get a bucket. They're ball denying Iverson. And uh, Eric Snow, who was the, the starting point guard for this team. Eric Snow. It's, it's funny. If you think of like the two teams in NBA Finals history that only got there because of one star player, you're thinking probably the 01 Sixers and the 07 Cavs. Eric Snow was the starting point guard on both those teams. That's great. That's a fun little thing. You know, as I mentioned at the top, like all these guys are just known for their defense. They're not really known for um, you know any kind of offensive creation ability. And the other thing important to note is everybody on this Sixers team. You know, Xavier mentioned Dog earlier with Zach Wilson, and <laughs> Dog is starting to I think get a little too broad in terms of what is a dog in the sports sense. To me, like the original of a dog is like Dog doesn't care if the dogs hurt. Dog's got to eat. And that whole Sixers team was like that. There's a picture that. NBC put up during the broadcast. Iverson had, I believe, 13 different injuries at the time of those finals. Like, sprained both ankles, had a knee sprain, had, like, several dislocated fingers, had, like, a shoulder thing. Like, he had everything. And players follow their leadership, right? Eric Snow is following in Iverson's footsteps. Eric Snow had a broken foot and played the NBA Finals on a broken foot, which makes it even more impressive. Now, with the shot clock winding down, unable to get the ball to Iverson, Eric Snow hits a running 18-foot jump shot, nothing but net, with like 11 seconds left. And that puts the Sixers up four. The Lakers came back down. I think they may have technically hit a shot like right at the buzzer, but it didn't matter. Sixers win that game one. Now, of course, Sixers didn't win that year. The Lakers did win the next four games. But I just want to impress upon our listeners that this was not a gentleman's sweep in the sense of like, okay, this team was clearly outmatched and they stole one, but like, you know, the other games weren't really close. The Sixers very easily could have won game two. It was close coming down late. Shaq fouled out with it being like a three-point game with like four minutes left. Shaq fouled out and we thought like, oh shit. And I mean, if they would have gone back to Philly up 2-0, there's no chance. Don't don't torture yourself over it. Don't torture There's yourself no over it, man. Chance. Yeah, no, no, you're right. We're talking about the first love. We're talking about the first love right now. It is incredible, though. Like, for all intents and purposes, like, the 0-1 Sixers team is remembered as if they were a championship team. Like, that's how fondly they're remembered in this city. NBC Sports Philadelphia does documentaries for, like, all the championship winning teams. Like, they did one on the 0-8 Phils. They did one on the 2017 Eagles. The only other team they did one for was the 2001 Sixers. So, like, it, it, that really just speaks to the impression that this team left on this city. And, I mean, for me, like, I mean, like I said, I already loved basketball because of Michael Jordan. I can distinctly remember his, his last finals run in 97, 98. I remember, you know, when he hit the shot over Byron Russell. Actually, fun fact, another thing I remember from that season, the Sixers played the Bulls that year, and I remember watching the game, and I remember that I was bawling my eyes out because I had to pick between my favorite player, Michael Jordan, 
my favorite team, the Sixers. And I, my five-year-old brain could not comprehend those conflicting things and like how to sort that out in my head. So I just cried. But uh, I cried no tears over the 2001 Sixers team because, like I said, I mean, that was just pure love. The day after that game one, I'll always remember. So the same neighbor that I watched the game at that house, he also had a basketball hoop. He had the only one in the neighborhood. So made my dad come with me to that hoop. And like for probably like an hour straight, I just kept doing the Iverson move in, in the corner and made him be Ty Lue and made him lie on the ground for me to jump over him. So I, I always remember that fondly. Yeah, I mean, just that was the team that, that's the team that hooked me. That team's the reason why I still put the Sixers over every team in Philadelphia. Obviously, the Eagles are Philadelphia's number one team, but it'll always be 1B to me because number one for always, forever in my heart will be the Sixers because of that 2000-2001 team. There, there is my love note to that team and all of its weird glory. Todd McCullough, I hope you're still absolutely slaying it on the pinball machine. Matt Geiger, I hope you still have that killer beard. Eric Snow, I hope you got your foot fixed, and I hope that you're not falling asleep on broadcast anymore like he did when he was the Sixers color commentator. He literally fell asleep during a broadcast and had to be shaken awake by Mark Zumoff. That's a thing. Aaron McKay, let's get to the tournament this year for Temple Buddy. Jumaine Jones, love you guy, number 33. Uh, Tyrone Hill and George Lynch. I don't e- I didn't even mention either of them in this whole soliloquy I went on. There were two starters, and Tyrone Hill... Ugliest man in the history of the NBA, but God damn it, could he get a rebound? I just, he had that I, dog in his face. Quite literally. Like, if you've seen, like, the picture of, like, the world's ugliest dog, I've seen Tyrone Hill's face put next to that dog as, like, a celebrity lookalike thing. And listen, it's it's not about the outside. It's about what's on in, the inside. And inside of Tyrone Hill resides a dog. Inside of the <laughs> resides a dog. So if I, if I ever got the chance to meet any of those guys, I would just fawn over them. I have met Aaron McKee. I've met Aaron McKee at Temple, so I don't know why I'm acting like I never met any of them. But I, I just wish that I would have told Aaron when I met him how much he meant to me. And it definitely wouldn't have creeped him out. And he would not have called for security. 2000-2001 Sixers, they're the reason why I will never know true happiness until the Sixers actually do get it done and win a championship. But I wouldn't have it any other way. Love that team. Love those guys. Larry Brown, you were good for, for a little bit there. I like you, buddy. Go Sixers. Just go to Dave and Buster's. You'll you'll eventually meet Allen Iverson there at some point. He's a TGI Fridays man. He's not a Dave and Buster's man. He's a TGI Fridays man. Specifically, the one on the Parkway, if I remember correctly. I knew people who worked at the Dave and Buster's who like met who who met him there like multiple times. So they did, James. You raise a good point because the, the TGI Fridays on the Parkway is now um, Victory Beer Garden. Oh no! That's whatever will Allen Iverson do? Apparently, he'll go to Dave and Buster's. Uh, I guess so. yeah. Well, asked and answered. So, God, I just, uh, that team, no less than once a month, I will go on YouTube and I will look up Allen Iverson's highlights from the game, one of those finals, just because it's like, it's that moment when sports are still perfect in your mind. They haven't yet ripped your heart out. And that's like the last moment of innocence that I can ever remember in my sports fandom. Well, we thank you for sharing, for taking us back to your superhero origin story. Xavier, I, I have to admit, I'm really curious to see what you're going to go with because you were, I got to say, you're incredibly passionate about some truly awful teams. Like, I root for a very bad team. You root for a couple, like, pretty historically inept teams, and I respect this immensely, and I'm, and I'm interested to see what has built that foundation within you. Interesting to talk about all of my awful teams, James, because I'm not going to talk about one of those. Things. I'm going to talk about 
the first team that I really can remember as a kid watching and really getting excited about and, you know, having posters of the Yankees. The former Baltimore Orioles? Yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> now that we've established that specifically in the uh, Cannons show, yeah, no, that's cool. Let's talk about the former Baltimore Orioles. All right, that, that, that's fine. Although the current Baltimore the Orioles are also very great. Zombie Orioles, yeah, no, the Zombie Orioles. So that's five-year-old Xavier at this point. That is the oldest that I can still remember well. Bits and pieces of the 96 Yankees I, I can remember, but that's only because I, I have like weird, like easy memories from like ages three and four, but 98 Yankees I still remember pretty fondly. So that's why I wanted to talk about them. But they've been done to death, so I'm not going to spend 45 minutes talking about how underrated and underappreciated they are. They are widely considered one of the greatest teams of all time for a reason. And so I'm not going to get too into that. There were a couple things I wanted to talk about. A couple like interesting pieces. So the 98 Yankees were a team of very good players. You know, a lot of Yankees teams, like especially have had five, six, seven future Hall of Famers on their team at any one time. 98 Yankees had two. Well, I guess three if you want to count what Tim Raines now, but the only two main players on those teams who, you know, logged significant time and were Hall of Famers were Jeter and Mariano Rivera. One of the starting pitchers are, are Hall of Famers. No one else uh, in that starting lineup is a Hall of Famer. They're all in the good, uh, you know, area. We got Bernie Williams, Paul O'Neill, Knobloch, Tino Martinez, Jorge Posada, Chad Curtis, Scott Brogius. I was, I was about to say, do we have our boy Scott Brogius on this? Okay, cool. Scott Brogius, you know, it is so wild the fact that Scott Brocious was a player to be named later in the trade where the Yankees dumped Kenny Rogers to the A's. Just like a couple weeks later, we'll just give you Scott Brocious. You know, he's making too much money for us A's now, and he had a negative war uh, in 97. Oh, and then he goes on to have a war of 5.3 in 98 and have his best season ever after literally being the player to be named later, which sometimes never even exists. Sometimes they just give you cash and not actually a player and just no one says anything about it. The fact that one of those actually ended up being important is wild. And we have Shane Spencer come in in September as a 26-year-old rookie. It's 10 home runs, including three grand slams. Ends up getting a World Series ring and then never does anything else after that. It is a weird team, especially with the teams that, that they played. In ALDS, they faced off against the Texas Rangers, who had... Current AL MVP, Juan Gon Gonzalez, who, what, I think it was 47 home runs, 40, 45 home runs and 157 RBIs that year. Jesus. Not bad. And they also had Pudge, despite, you know, obviously being behind the plate all the time. 21 homers, 91 RBIs, had 321. Rusty Greer and Will Clark each had over 100 RBIs. They were a very strong batting team. Not going to say too much about the Texas Rangers pitching, but batting-wise, they were really good. And then in the ALDS, they scored one run in three games. Really? Only one? Yeah, it, it was one. So game one, David Wells, Mariano Rivera, shut them out, two to nothing. Game two, Andy Pettit, Mariano Rivera, pretty much dominate, three to one. Game three, David Cohn <laughs> shuts them out, for nothing. So they had one run and 13 hits in 27 innings for what was a team with 
the AL MVP and multiple guys with over 100 RBIs. Absolutely stonewalled. ALCS, Yankees once again cruise pretty easily against the Cleveland former name team that I feel like saying anymore. Four games to two, once again, starts off with David Wells shutting them down. They only get two runs in the in the ninth after they maybe let him go a little too far. Game two and game three, Cleveland somehow wins. And it's like, oh, maybe there's some issues here. And it's like, oh, no, El Duque Hernandez comes in and gets a shutout for nothing. Next to Yankees win, of course. Then we get to the 98 World Series where it is Yankees against the Bruce Bochy-led San Diego Padres. A fun series to remember that, yes, the Yankees played the Padres in the World Series in 98. This was an interesting one. The series started off, like, not great for the Yankees initially. David Wells didn't do that well. gave up five runs early. And then the Yankees get seven runs in the seventh inning thanks to a Tino Martinez grand slam and end up winning 9-6. And then from there on, it wasn't too much of a contest. Game two, Yankees scored seven runs in the first three innings and win 9-3. The series goes to San Diego, and this is where we have Scott Brocious uh, hit a three-run home run in the eighth inning, give the Yankees 5-4 win, and then shut out. Thanks to Andy Pettit and Mariano Rivera, 3-0 in Game 4. So it wasn't too much of a contest. Sweep. Bye-bye, Padres. Thanks for coming. At least we get to go to San Diego for a couple games. Like I said, this team has been done to death. Don't want to spend too much time talking about them. I just, the players on this team, a lot of them, like I said, not Hall of Famers. A lot of the, the very good. I love Jorge Posada. Bernie Williams... He's one of my favorite players of all time, as has already been established in the canon of this podcast. El Duque Hernandez, 12-4 and with a 3-1-3 ERA as the fourth or fifth starter for that team. Our other starters were the two Davids and Andy Pettit, one of whom threw a perfect game and was also very hungover when he did so. It, it, it's, it was just a fun, interesting team. It didn't have a lot of what the later Yankees teams will have, like, it wasn't a lot of super high-paid like guys, and almost most of them were either reclamation projects or homegrown. Let me see if I can even count it. But like, you got Brocious reclamation project, Jeter, Bernie, Posada, all three of those homegrown pitchers. El Duque, Pettit, homegrown, Aravu reclamation project, Mariano, homegrown, like. It, was, it wasn't a lot of, oh, we traded for established stars type team, like the Yankees are very infamous for doing in a lot of years. This was a very different type of roster construction you know, that happened after the disappointment of 97. Uh, you know, I just, this, this is the earliest team that I can remember, and it's a team that I love very much and don't want to talk too much about because I'm sure... Everyone who's not a Yankees fan has heard a billion things about the 98 Yankees. They just make me very happy. Hey, I love to hear about the exploits of the Baltimore Orioles in any <laughs> era, regardless of time or place, just carrying on the proud legacy that was forged here in Charm City. You know, that's fine. I, I, I wish I was in Charm City. Uh, you know, I like being in Ireland, but I am sad that I'm not going to see Arsenal play in, in Charm City's weekend. 
I will make it up to you by also boycotting the game in solidarity and because I have work. Our good friend Mr. Medicinal is trying to go, so hopefully he, he gets a chance to, uh, to, get, to go see them. That's it. I'm just, like I said, I didn't want to go too, too deep about them just because it's not a death. Just the team that makes me happy. I appreciate the way you talk about it because you're right that there's not a lot of names admittedly that I now, 20 years later, don't recognize. I'd say half of those, but it's the kind of team where they're so good that every member of the roster is clearly seared into your brain. And that's the kind of thing I love hearing. Part of the reason I picked that intro that we had today was something I love about Jimmy McGee, the, the announcer who did it. He's referred to as the memory man as someone's coming down the last stretch of a run. Hmm, who are the 13 Irish people that have medaled in the Olympics before? And then name them off by what medal he has. Because that's the kind of thing that, that it does. It sears into your brain. I want to talk to you about a time that the Orioles truly just burned themselves into their brain for me forever. It's going to be later than you all think. It's all the way in May of 2004 that it really happens. I do want to give special shout out to October 5th, 2001. That is Cal Ripken's second-to-last game ever. My mother and I could not afford tickets to the very last game for Cal Ripken because they became incredibly expensive, but we did get tickets to his second-to-last game where we watched him go 0 for 5 because you couldn't see anything every single time he came up to bat because it was just a sea of light bulb flashes for people's cameras. So that's, that's the very first game I remember, but largely as kids, we went to minor league games in Maryland and in Pennsylvania. It was just a lot cheaper than going to major league games until around 2004. Let's, let's set the scene for a second with May 2004. Get everybody in that 2000s mindset. In that month, both Friends and Frasier aired their final episodes. Some other things that happened. Massachusetts became the first state to legalize gay marriage. We had two really big cultural films. Fahrenheit 9-11 debuted at Cannes. It became the first ever documentary to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes. And also Shrek 2 came out. So huge month for, for just culture at large. In baseball, Randy Johnson pitches his perfect game in this, the 16th ever, and Barry Bonds sets the new record for most intentional walks in a game with four. In May 9th of 2004, my dad and I are able to take advantage for the first time ever of something the Orioles used to run called the Dugout Club. They started this around 2004, and for $25, you could get a child up to the age of 12, 10 free tickets, an additional ticket could be purchased at just $10, a ball, a lanyard, a hat, and a dumb little membership card, all for the price, as I said, of $25. That's about $40 today. This was a steal as far as the full while is concerned, particularly because Camden Yards has been always very, very chill about outside food and drink. So we were basically like, all right, cool. We paid $25 once. We're going to probably end up paying another 100 down the line, but for $125 over the summer, one parent takes this kid to 10 games and can just bring whatever food and drink they want. It was amazing. It was when we finally were like able to go to Orioles games regularly again. And May 9th, 2004 is the first one that we went to. I'll go ahead and spoil for you. This is not a very good team. I am not talking about a team that makes it to the championships. I'm not talking about a team that makes it to the playoffs. I wasn't like largely aware of football when the Ravens made it to the Super Bowl. I, of course, watched and loved watching them win. But outside of that, really didn't see any deep playoff runs for pretty much my entire childhood. And so it's other things you have to look for. It's individual games that you have to find and treasure. And this one, little did we know, was going to be an absolute barn burner. There's not a lot of stars in either of these lineups as they face Cleveland that day, so it's kind of surprising they did. We had an outfield of Larry Bigby, Luis Matos, and Jay Gibbons that day. 
all absolute nobodies. Jay Gibbons, along with the star pitcher on this team, Sidney Ponson, between the two of them, not a single chin. They combined cannot form one chin. We did have BJ Surhoff as our designated hitter that day. Every middle schooler's favorite player on the Orioles for many years. We loved BJ Surhoff. I wonder why middle schoolers were such a big fan of him. After those jokes, though, we did have a kind of solid infield. The catcher that year was Javi Lopez coming off a uh, long stint with Atlanta. Yeah, Javi Lopez ends up having one of his best seasons at the plate, even if he is bit over the hill on like actually being able to catch and whatnot. Then we've got, at the bases, Rafael Palmeiro at first, Brian Roberts at second, Melvin Moore at third, and Miguel Tejada at shortstop. What's particularly exciting about this is... This is before the Orioles became cheapskates. Did you know at one point in 1998, actually, the season that Xavier was just talking about, the Orioles are number one in payroll that year. And they stay still in, like, the upper half for the next couple years. Peter Angelos, once upon a time, did want to have a winning baseball team. And 2004 was definitely an attempt at that for the 50th anniversary of the team. We've got six all-stars on this team. Everybody except the outfield of Jay Gibbons, Luis Matos, and Larry Bigby makes at least one all-star game. But it's what really is most special about is he went out and he got free agents. We got Rafael Palmeiro to come back to the CD. We got Miguel Tejada after his stint in Oakland. We have Brian Roberts, who, for my money, one of the best second basemen in baseball in the 2000s, incredibly underrated, is basically what Derek Jeter would have been if Derek Jeter wasn't on the Yankees. He has three different seasons with 50 doubles. This 2004 would be his first year with it. There are four other people to do that. Hall of Famer, Paul Wehner. Hall of Famer, Tris Speaker. Hall of Famer, Stan Musial, and future Hall of Famer, Albert Pujols. Five people altogether have hit 50 doubles three times. It's Brian Roberts and those four guys. That just makes me think of like, you know, like the stat they show, like players in NBA history to average over 14.6 rebounds, four assists, one block, one steal, and 70% free throw shooting. The, the graphic I'm thinking of is like, it's like, it's Michael Jordan, it's LeBron James, it's Larry Bird, it's Magic Johnson, and it's Thaddeus Young. Thad Young. Future Hall of Famer Thad Young. Absolutely. Hall of Guy, at least. <laughs> this was a solid infield. We had no pitching to speak of. I'm not even going to really like get into the pitchers. They were all terrible. This was a solid infield, and it was the kind of infield that would excite someone because it was the kind of infield that would hit. And they were going against a team, Cleveland team, that was coming off their peak in the late 90s, early 2000s, but still had some solid pieces on it. They have hometown friend of Darren Erstad, Travis Hafner, DHing for them on this day. They've got Victor Martinez, back when Victor Martinez still played catcher. And they also have the ageless Omar Vizquel coming off the bench at this point. When I say ageless, this was his 16th season at this point. He was 37. Should point out he had eight more seasons to go before he retired. Incredible. Yeah. But that infield in particular is something from this game that was able to stick with me. Because that infield largely was retained for a while, especially Brian Roberts, Melvin Moore, and Miguel Tejada. They would play together a combined 28 seasons for the Orioles, get 75.3 war in that whole time. Those guys gave us 28 seasons of an average of about 2.7 war. Borderline all-star reserve production every single year, year in and year out at those three positions. And they come out firing hot on this day, which is the first dugout club day. So you're out in the left field, upper reserve, with all of the other children that have gone dugout club. So I can't imagine what hell that is like for the parents. But for the kids, it's awesome. Because we go out there and every single one of us wants to scream just as much as every other one around us. So the left field upper reserves go into pandemonium when, in that first inning, Melvin Moore hits a solo shot to get us on the board. Two innings later, some small ball gets us up 3-0. It was up 3-0 in like the third inning. The left field is losing its mind. Dugout club kids 
cannot contain themselves. Oh my God, this is the best team we've ever seen. Until very quickly, Cleveland battles back because it's the Orioles' way. It's bad pitching. And very quickly in the fourth, after a two-out rally, it's now 5-4 Cleveland. So things aren't going so well. Left field bleachers now. That's the thing I remember the most about dugout clubs is it reminds me the most of soccer hooliganism because it's just a bunch of hyped up kids. They have nothing but energy. They will do every single chant that someone around them does for three hours. I don't think there was ever a time that someone wasn't like down two strikes that game and someone didn't get a one more strike chant going for the entirety of the rest of the at bat while that person had two strikes. Just an incredible performance by us up there in the field. And thankfully, the Orioles' performance starts to impress. They go down 6-4, but then Melvin Mora gets on base for Miguel Tejada to smack a home run to deep, deep center field. I'm talking so deep that still 18 years later, it has not landed. This ball was recently captured in that photograph that everyone's been passing around from the Weber Deep Space Telescope. That's where the ball that Miguel Tejada hit on May 9th, 2004 currently is. Miguel Tejada will go on to hit in the home run derby this year as a shortstop and win, setting the record with the old format of 27 home runs, which was another just crystallizing moment for a young James Fulweiler. But at this time, they've tied at 6-6. We've got hope. We're back alive. Next time we get to the bottom of the order, clearly the pitcher can handle this, get three easy outs, allows one base runner from the bottom of the order, which unfortunately turns it over, and another two-out rally now puts the Orioles in an 8-6 hole. But Miguel Tejada, he comes back up to bat. And in that moment, I could feel something about Miguel Tejada. And I couldn't necessarily put the words to it because I was not yet, uh, as I would say at the time, a potty mouth. But looking at Miguel Tejada, seeing the, the energy within him, the primal rage within him, Diaz, I'm sure it's no secret to you that Miguel Tejada still had some shit to prove. And so Miguel Tejada comes up. Another mammoth two-run blast. The Orioles have hit three home runs. I still, at this time, like thought home runs were precious currency because I didn't go to a lot of major league games. I went to minor league games where home runs can be a lot rarer. And so to see three home runs in this game, my mind is blown. The exchange rate going from regularly attending minor league to major league, this was the taste that I could never give it back. We're up now, finally, 10-8. to 8. We bring in the other player on our team that we have with the initials BJ, BJ Ryan, who's a very effective reliever for us. He gets us out of a little jam, get close to some nastiness, but he gets three strikeouts in an inning. And so we finally enter like the home stretch. We even get a couple insurance runs off Jose Jimenez. It's 12 to eight. So we go into the ninth inning and the Orioles need every single one of those insurance runs. Because after Jose Jimenez pitches for Cleveland, we have Jorge Julio pitch for the Orioles. For an inning and a half, both teams had someone pitching with the initials JJ. Jorge Julio was a very, very, very bad closer. I have looked into like the stats that he had leading up to the seasons where he was awarded that role. Cannot for the life of me understand why they thought he was ready for that role. And he promptly shows that that is 100% correct. He does get the first out. Plows a single. Gets his second out. Base runner advances to second. But you know, we got two outs now. We're going to get out of this. By the way, that base runner, a third-year Coco Crisp in just his second actual full oh. season. Coco Crisp was on this Cleveland team. Can I just say on Coco Crisp, mm-hmm. for some reason, Coco Crisp and Milton Bradley are like the same guy in my head. They were both outfielders, I think, too, right? Yeah. And I, they both I have names that can't possibly be real. Exactly. Just a, a real like Mandela effect moment that like, okay, so you're telling me 
There's one outfielder that's named after a cereal. And there's another one that's named after board games, right? Milton Bradley. Yeah, board game company. Like, what the fuck? Like, some, somebody was pulling our legs. Well, they weren't. And neither were they pulling our legs when we get a chance to take out Omar Vizquel. Again, 37-year-old Omar Vizquel for the third out. This should not be a challenge. But Jorge Julio was on the mound. And so it ends up being quite a challenge. Here's what happens now in this two-out rally that follows, starting with Omar Vizquel. We got a single. We got a walk. We got a single. And then we have a hit-by-pitch. We have now reached Victor Martinez. Scary young Victor Martinez, who, by the way, someday in the future will have an incredibly fun factoid in the ALDS in this very stadium. He will hit a home run immediately after J.D. Martinez does, and they will become the first pair of people with the same last name in the playoffs to hit consecutive home runs since Baltimore Orioles' Frank and Brooks Robinson. That's years in the future. Right now, Victor Martinez does have a chance to be the hero. He's at the plate. Two outs, runners on second and third. They do induce a pop fly. The Orioles win. Astounding 12-11 back-and-forth affair. Truly, like, the most exciting game I think a child can see is that kind of, like, high runs, several lead changes, lots of dingers. Kids and chicks both dig the long ball. Like I said, we, we stopped going to minor league games after that. I couldn't settle for less than those, those mighty birds. I thought the Baltimore Orioles were the greatest baseball team in the world following that game for a little bit because, again, I didn't watch like large cable networks. I only ever, if I watched any baseball, watched the minor league games or some Orioles games. So as far as I was concerned following that game, they were the greatest team in the world, and I was lucky to be able to hitch my wagon to that. Of course, it was eight-plus years from that moment on before I even ever got to see them in the playoffs. Still, to this day, have not seen them win a game in the ALCS, and it's been now 18 years. So, it's a good time right now to be an Orioles fan, and I think, Diaz, that's why I'm glad that you picked this for us this week, because, look, most of the time people aren't going to win, and I frankly don't think the Orioles will ever win a World Series in my lifetime. I'm on record saying that. I'm almost certain they will never win a championship, but I'm at peace with that, because all we really want is to be able to take a little 10-year-old kid to an incredibly fun baseball game for like 10 bucks and not have to worry about anything else for three hours. That's still what I look to get out of it every time I go. Obviously, all of the inane nitpicking that we do afterwards has also become a large part of how we interact with these things past being children because we need to evolve as we do with, with our hobby. But man, at the end of the day, like, if you don't like it as a kid, you probably don't like it later on. And if you do still like it later on, it's probably because you're thinking about how much fun it was when you were a kid. Right. I mean, the people that fascinate me are the people that come to sports later in life, like as like a like relatively formed adult. And they're like, oh, sports. I'm going to become a sports fan. In a way, their relationship with their teams are probably much healthier than ours. Oh, assuredly. Because to them, it's like it's like that fun thing like, like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I started reading books lately. Oh, I got a, I got a Peloton. Oh, yeah. you know, Power dose starter. I've been watching a lot of the Phillies lately. Great for you, Guy. I'm glad that your happiness is not inextricably tied to this group of men playing a silly game with a ball that you have no control over. Um, yeah, like you mean you haven't been checking the box scores for the Phillies low-A affiliate every day to see how your number four ranked prospect in the franchise is doing? Oh, God. I, that used to be my favorite thing, like, back in high school, was just, like, the minor league reports. Like, I would pour through them. And, like, the same thing with, like, 
I guess the, the Sixers never had a G League affiliate when I was growing up. They only got it later in life. But like even still, like in college, like I loved being like, yo, fucking Furkan Korkmaz dropped 35 down in Delaware last night. Like <laughs> the thing that can be hard for people that didn't grow up with it to understand is that like it is ultimately, I think, about like a, a memory of simpler times, right? And like whenever you put the game on, like you kind of get transported back to being like that little kid again. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that, that, that's, that, that's, that's what's beautiful about sports. And I think that's, you know, that, that's why we all love them. And that's why uh, the three of us gather each week to talk about random guys that we will never meet and who will never meet us, but nonetheless had an impact on our lives. And, and I think that's the beauty of sport. Yeah. Because I mean, after all, why are we watching it? If not to later sit around and remember some guys and we thank you for, I mean, we definitely remembered a lot of very good guys in this in a more unorthodox manner than usual. We promise next week we will be right back to that typical orthodox fashion. We're going to get kicked back off with our normal litigations and move forward as we continue to fill that illustrious hall as our eternal pact commands us to do. As I said, hey, you should watch an Orioles game at some point. They're uh, they're pretty hot. It'll also be, I believe, the Home Run Derby the evening that this comes out, so go watch some dingers. I'm excited to see. I think Julio Rodriguez is going to win. I'm going to go ahead and say I'm putting my money on Julio Rodriguez. I If if it cannot be Kyle Schwarber as a biased Phillies fan, I do hope it is ultimately a Latino. One thing I got Jose say, Ramirez well, also could. I should actually clarify. Jose, it's, I think it's going to be Jose Ramirez or Julio Rodriguez. Those two. Two good contenders. I love I love the way Rodriguez just kind of come onto the scene because like I don't think he was like a super heralded prospect. He kind of just like got here and is coming not very coming good. into this season. I would say he was. He took a major leap in estimation last year. Like he was a known quantity going into the 2021 season. He became one of the best prospects in baseball during the 2021 season. Okay, that makes sense. So uh, like people in Seattle were as excited for him this year as people in Baltimore were about Adley Rutschman. Like 100% the same level of excitement. That makes sense. Just a little bit less waiting. Well, so I wanted to say with like with your Orioles going so well right now, like there's somebody they put together a matrix and essentially like there's three things that play into fan satisfaction, right? Is the team winning now? Are they supposed to be winning now? And will they be winning in the future? And I think they determined, like, the number two fan happiness is the team's winning now. They're not supposed to be winning now, but they will continue to win into the future. So as yeah. the, the farm system continues to flourish and develop, I mean, this is, like, short of championships, like, the, the young upstart team that nobody expected to be here is, I think, the favorite team to root for. Um, yeah, I mean, we're never losing another game. That might not even be true by the time this comes out, but as far as I'm concerned right now, we're not, no, if I talk about it too much, everything will come falling down. Listen, all evidence to now does not suggest that that is impossible. If current trends continue, they will never lose another game. 128 and 44, yeah, that would break the record. 128's in play. Sorry, no, 118-44. would still break the record for most wins. Wouldn't break the record for win percentage, I think, over those Cubs in 1903, but would break the record for wins. So you're telling me there's a chance. And uh, we appreciate you all taking a chance on us once again with our alternative programming uh, and all of your patience in these last couple weeks as we enjoyed some other things. But we'll get back to what we all enjoy next week. Until then, I've been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier, all the way over here from Dublin, Ireland, where I'm very tired. And I'm Diaz. And Xavier, I wish I was with you. Oh, to be a guy on the wall in Dublin. If I could bring you-